Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have these hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create a common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. get started, I have something that I have to get off my chest. Um, spicy words incoming. I'm so fucking tired of having to open our episodes with some quick note about the latest tragedy or social calamity or gross injustice. I hate having to talk about the fact that our research-focused episodes are prepared in advance and that we can't be nimble enough to present a nuanced and data-driven approach to a topic that we wish we didn't even have to talk about. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not mad that we've staked our claim on bringing you the most unbiased information that we can on complicated topics, on controversial topics, hell, even polarizing partisan topics. But I'm so angry because I feel like every time we start to dig into one really big deal issue, we're interrupted by a literal and actual crisis. Our country, the world, can't take one damn minute to take a breath and try to learn from the last disaster before launching headfirst into another one. And it's exhausting, and it sometimes it feels really defeating when, when this is what we're trying to do. It is. Uh, it is exhausting, and yeah, it is defeating. And it doesn't help that the people who are responsible for making sure that we do learn from the previous, or that we at least enact lessons learned from the previous tragedy or disaster, are so tied up in the games of politics and staying in power that they never actually make any change. Um, Which is a very pessimistic way to put it. We have incremental change. There are laws that are enacted, but it never feels like they're enough. Um, And it does sometimes make it feel like we're beating our heads against a wall. (laughs) Whenever uh, we we're we're pivoting, one way and then the world slams into us with a freak occurrence or tragedy or war from another direction so yeah it's it's hard um and i just like as i was trying to prepare this episode and and write the intro i was like oh well i'm gonna have to include a note that we're gonna at some point talk about you know what the hell happened and i just i don't know i'm 
I was like, I'm, I'm tired of having to like write that note. Hey, we know, we know this is an issue and we want to talk about it. But today we're talking about something completely different because we yeah. work a little bit in advance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully though, this provides a good break for listeners at least. So yes. they don't have to be inundated, there's the word, with everything that everybody else is talking about. Um, so yeah, what are we, what are we going to talk about today? Okay. Okay. So picture this. I'm sitting at my kid's volleyball game, texting with John and Savannah between serves and sets, trying to decide what we want to cover in the next few episodes. I knew we had one coming up that would premiere on Memorial Day. So naturally, I popped over to Google News and I typed in Memorial Day looking for something quirky that we could make a holiday episode about. We're still trying to um, still trying to shake the heaviness of the Unholy Convergence series off after all. Yeah, exactly. So imagine my surprise when a headline graces my screen that reads, South Carolina marks Confederate Memorial Day on Tuesday. And I thought to myself, surely this had to be some sort of clickbait situation and that I was going to get to the end of that article and just be completely embarrassed that I fell for their tricks. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, no, no. it absolutely was not. It was uh, fairly banal in tone, actually, with... Three newspaper-length paragraphs, which are like itty-bitty, noting that South Carolina state offices closed to mark that holiday yearly on May 10. That state offices in Alabama and Mississippi had closed for their Confederate Memorial Days in April. And that a bill that would allow South Carolina state employees to take Juneteenth or any other day instead of Confederate Memorial Day had passed in the South Carolina Senate in March, but was stuck in a House committee and likely to die with the session end. Yeah. Small but mighty paragraphs. Very yeah, loaded. Very loaded. There's just so much there. So naturally, I sent John and Savannah the link with an aghast emoji and about seven in terabangs, which is the question mark and the exclamation mark put together, Nerd. and then decided then and there that we had our episode topic. That was what we were talking about. Yeah. So here we are to talk about Confederate Memorial Day, oh, which yes. is a thing. Like almost everything else we talk about here, we quickly learned that there is more to this day than meets the headline including a connection to the Ladies' Memorial Associations of the Reconstruction South and the Lost Cause narrative that has influenced how the entire nation talks about the Civil War. Um, we also want to take some time to talk about how the perpetuation of holidays like this makes it much more complicated for us as a nation to work towards things like racial justice goals. So Exactly. So let's, let's about. start by talking yeah. about regular old Memorial Day first, because I'm not sure that many people actually know why we observe that. Yeah. When I was a kid, it got lumped together with all sorts of other non-religious holidays. Um, for the longest time, it was just a holiday about the military. Um, this is an admission, I'm sure, that would break the heart of my poor Navy <laughs> father. You didn't fail me, Dad. I just didn't pay attention. Kids, what are you going to do? Um, so even now as an adult, though, um, most of the time, I only ever see Memorial Day in connection with a phrase like all gave some, some gave all or something oh, like that. Billy that, Ray that Cyrus sentiment, right. Um, <laughs> oh, Billy. Um, but there's no real discussion about where it came from or its history or anything like that. So I know a lot of people especially have no idea where the holiday came from or who it honors. 
So allow us to fill that gap. Where did Memorial Day come from? Now, this is the part of the episode where we normally go, surprise, we're actually celebrating the subjugation of an entire people or something else completely <laughs> horrible and terrible. Yeah, guilty. Um, but, well, okay, we hate to break it to you this time. No, uh, no, no, we're kidding. This one does seem to be uh, pretty straightforward. There's no sort of secret sordid history to this that we can find anyway. Uh, right. Memorial Day was initially called Decoration Day, and it began after the heavy death toll of the Civil War meant that almost every community had lost someone. Uh, with 620,000 military deaths, the Civil War was responsible for killing off nearly 2% of the population at the time, the American population at the time. Um, for comparison, if we lost 2% of the U.S. population right now, today, that would be over 6.6 .6 million people who died. To date, the Civil War has claimed more lives than any conflict in U.S. history, more American lives. Um, the U.S. first national cemeteries were actually established during the Civil War. And shortly after the war ended, um, in the spring, Americans across the nation were already going to cemeteries and memorials and celebrating the memory of the fallen with both private gatherings and like public parades. There's no official record detailing where this tradition of spring gatherings originated. It's entirely possible that numerous communities nationwide spontaneously created similar celebrations independent of each other. Mm -hmm. Some say that the earliest Memorial Day commemorations were organized by a group of former slaves in Charleston, South Carolina, less than a month after the Confederacy surrendered in 1865, which, I mean, that's a hell of a power move. Right. <laughs> the story is that as the Civil War neared its end, thousands of Union soldier prisoners of war were herded into a series of hastily assembled camps in Charleston, South Carolina. Conditions at one camp in particular, located at a former race trap, were so bad that 250 prisoners died from disease or exposure. They were buried in a mass grave behind the track's grandstand. Three weeks after the Confederate surrender, on May 1, 1865, a procession of more than a thousand people entered the former camp. People recently freed from enslavement, accompanied by regiments of U.S. colored troops and a handful of white Charlestonians, gathered in the camp to consecrate a new, proper burial site for the Union dead. The group sang hymns, read selected works, and distributed flowers around the cemetery, which itself was dedicated to the martyrs of the race course. Which is a pun. And I yes. can't get over it. <laughs> yes. A few years later, Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, John A. Logan, first began unifying the disparate celebrations by designating May 30th, 1868, as Decoration Day, a day to decorate the graves of Union troops nationwide. Side note, the Grand Army of the Republic wasn't an actual army per se, but a fraternal organization comprising veterans of the Union Army, Navy, and Marines who fought in the Civil War. It's considered one of the first organized advocacy groups in American politics and fought for voting rights for black veterans, patriotic education, and to make Memorial Day a national holiday. The GAR has an interesting story well worth reading. May 30th was chosen because it wasn't the anniversary of any particular battle, meaning it could be, couldn't be construed as specifically giving one battle more importance than another. By 1890, each of the northern states had made Decoration Day an official state holiday. Southern states, 
previewing their long and proud tradition of being different just because, continued to honor the dead on separate days until after World War I. Despite the lack of clear evidence about the origins of Memorial Day, in 1966, the federal government declared Waterloo, New York, the official birthplace of Memorial Day. Records do exist of Waterloo first celebrating the day on May 5th, 19, or 18, whew, 1866, so it's certainly a strong contender um, if the story is about the celebration in Charleston, <laughs> depending on when that happened, um, if that's not true or otherwise exaggerated, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it was chosen because it hosted an annual event where members of the community uh, shut their businesses down to observe the day. Up until 1971, Decoration Day was observed nationwide uh, on the originally designated day of or date of May 30th. But in 1968, Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, which established Memorial Day as a federal holiday that was celebrated on the last Monday in May, creating a three-day weekend for federal <laughs> employees. Uh, <laughs> the change went into effect in 1971, so that's why we now celebrate on the last Monday of the month. Over the years, Memorial Day has become a national day of remembrance to honor all who have died in service to the United States. Now, this is an important note, an important distinction. So please listen closely. Do not thank a living veteran for their service <laughs> on Memorial Day. That's fair. Veterans Day is for the living, and we celebrate it on November 11th. Right. Memorial Day is for the fallen. Probably won't upset a vet if you thank them, but you'll definitely get a sarcastic joke about not being dead yet so <laughs> that's fair okay so what is confederate memorial day well on may 31 1867 the former rebel capital of richmond virginia teemed with confederate spirit businesses throughout the city closed that friday as though it was a sabbath or a holiday nearly 60,000 people made the journey by foot on horseback or by carriage to the hollywood cemetery there, well-dressed citizens tilled the paths of the cemetery while women and children decorated 6,000 dirt-mounded graves of Confederate soldiers with freshly cut buds and garlands of evergreens. Civil War veterans attended the services, but it was very clear that the day was under the direction of the Hollywood Ladies Memorial Association. The, Holly the Hollywood Memorial Day service had been established by Virginia's Confederate women in the spring of 1865, when four years of war had left the remains of more than 260,000 white Southerners scattered in graves across the South, most of them within the Commonwealth of Virginia. As former soldiers returned to their fields to resume farming after the war, they very often uncovered the decomposing bodies of both Union and Confederate soldiers buried where they fell, either by the elements or by their hurried compatriots. It's interesting that they chose the day after. Uh, let's see. Yeah, let's see. Hold on. John Logan is just a note declared May 30th, 1868 as mm -hmm. Decoration Day. And they had this on May 31st, 1867. Right. And, and it, just, they had been going for like a couple of years. So yeah, 1865, 1866, like, I, th hmm. I feel it's, like somebody was being petty. 
Yeah, it really does make it feel like they were going back and forth between, okay, here's your Memorial Day. Okay, here's my Memorial Day. Oh, right. oh, 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 ours is better. No, ours is better. Um, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's For- something that I discovered in doing some of this research is that it's, it is really hard to untangle uh, the origin of either Memorial Day from the other one. Like everybody yeah. was like, oh, crap. So many people died. We need a day. And yeah, the fact that we celebrate the Union version, the Northern version, um, I mean, it's not surprising to me, but it is only one day different. Yeah. Yeah. So for context, the 260,000 white Southerners who died was close to 1% of the U.S. population at that time. So as we mentioned earlier, that's that's about 3 million people. Three million people in today's numbers. Right. So. And just And like, just imagine finding the bodies of like three million people just scattered all over um, a much out. smaller region than we think about as the United States South today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's Virginia's just, it's not, a lot. Not that big. Yeah. Most yeah. of the rebel fallen would eventually be buried in Confederate cemeteries, but that was not overseen by the federal or even state governments. Even war veterans themselves didn't contribute much to the cause. Instead, approximately 80% of the Confederate dead would be laid to rest in final cemeteries created by locally organized groups of Southern white women like Mary Williams of Winchester, Virginia, who was especially horrified by the lack of proper burials for the Confederate soldiers who had defended her Shenandoah Valley town. Along with her sister-in-law, Eleanor Boyd, Mary called a meeting of the townswomen in May 1865 basically less than a month after General Lee's surrender. At this gathering, several of the women who had volunteered in the hospitals during the war agreed to organize a memorial society whose purpose was to gather these dead soldiers within a five-mile radius radius of the town and bury them together in a single graveyard. Once that task had been completed, they hoped to establish an annual tradition of placing flowers and evergreens on the graves. Ooh, what a task. We're just going to go out and dig up dead people. Ooh, ooh. I don't I, know. I don't like it. I don't like it. I know. I mean, I get why they were doing it. And I can respect the idea of, like, honoring the fallen dead, sure. But, ooh, gross. Yeah, not, not my favorite idea. No. So within a year, white women from Virginia to Alabama followed suit, establishing more than 70 similar organizations throughout the South known as Ladies Memorial Associations. Wait, haven't we heard about these Ladies Memorial Associations before? You know, yeah, just might have. But there's a better chance that you've heard of a little something called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah. In today's society, the group functions as a social club for Southern women and gives out scholarships to high school graduates. But in the Reconstruction period, the organization played a large activist role in how the country came to view the Civil War, um, how many white Americans came to view issues like states' rights and segregation and even the character of black Americans. I will never forget sitting in a high school assembly where they were reading out the scholarships that were earned by each of the graduating seniors, and somebody had a United Daughters of the Confederacy scholarship, and I was like, the fuck? (laughs) 
Ew. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I, I mean, until it. I started high school, I was a northern girl. So that's the first yeah. I'd ever heard. And I was like, I kind of side eyed the chick. I was like, what the? anyway, <clears throat> so after Richmond's Memorial Day event, resident James Henry Gardner observed that had the affair not been under the control of the ladies, then a thousand bayonets would have bristled to prevent the celebration. And he had a fair point. Ladies' memorial associations made up of the women who had served in Confederate hospitals, worried over Confederate husbands, sons, and brothers, and refused to cooperate with Union troops, proved to be key to advancing the lost cause of the Confederate South. Because there was a general assumption at the time that women were inherently non-political, they were essentially handed the mantle of memorializing the Confederacy. After all, if women weren't political, then their actions couldn't be construed as treasonous to the U.S. government. Very important. Oh, man. Mmm. <laughs> <sighs> mm. mm. It's, mmm. Mm. It, like, mmm. <laughs> it's, mmm. Like, all of the ways that we... <laughs> This sounds weird, but all the ways that we end up dehumanizing women throughout history are really, really weird to me. And mm -hmm. the fact like declaring women as being apolitical just by nature, just because they're women, like, yeah, to me, it kind of just it's like saying, well, you're, you're not human. Right. <laughs> like, that's what it sounds like to me. Uh, you're not political. Um, so you can do these things. But like that would kind of mean that whoever said that believed that these women didn't have like thoughts or, or feelings about the rules and laws that govern their lives. Like, right. Or agency to advocate for themselves and others or it's just, Hmm, it's weird. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's gross. Um, anyway, moving on historian, Carolyn E. Jan Janae, is it Janae? I think it's Janny. Is it Janny? Yeah, I think like it Alice is Janny. and Janny. All right, the all right. Actors. Historian Carolyn E. Janney argues that it was the Ladies Memorial Associations founded in the immediate post-Civil War period that deserve credit as the first group to redefine military defeat as a political, social, and cultural victory for the White South. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> these these Southern Patriots. I can't say it without having a, a <laughs> accent. Southern Patriots. And people are going to be like, that's so fake, John. I'm like, no, that's that's where I grew up. Yeah. Um, according to Janney, um, they did not surrender their Confederate sympathies after after Appomattox. Um, if anything, their commitment was strengthened by defeat. Though the groups were first organized to identify and bury the overwhelming numbers of war dead scattered across Virginia's battlefields, they also created um, formal graveyards with memorial statues and aided needy veterans, work done by the federal government for Union soldiers. With no Confederate state to assume these responsibilities, the women took on this work themselves widening the white women's public role and political influence in the South and giving rise to other organizations that would continue in similar work, like the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Apolitical women created institutions 
to increase their political strength. Mm-hmm. Not that that was probably the conscious reasoning behind all of it in public, but it's just an interesting juxtaposition to me. At the heart of the daughter's mission was the importance of furnishing authentic information from which, oh my God. <laughs> I can't even say it. I couldn't write I it with a straight I face. I can't get through the quote, guys. Okay. I couldn't write it with a straight face. Okay. We have a couple of quotes like this in the show, so. Bear with us. Bear with us. Um, at the heart of the daughter's mission was the importance of, quote, furnishing authentic information from which a conscientious historian will be enabled to write a correct and impartial history of the Confederate side during the struggle for Southern independence. In other words, promulgating the lost cause myth developed by former Confederates in the years after the war ended to reframe the war in a way that restored both white and Southern honor. Yeah, this this framing is where we get the narrative that states' rights and not slavery was the cause of the war. It taught that the North had provoked the fighting and that large numbers of enslaved men and women had been faithful to their masters and supportive of the Confederate cause. <sighs> Deep breathing. It taught that the only reason the Union won was because of its access to industry and manpower and its willingness to sacrifice the lives of its soldiers. And then probably most importantly, it taught that secession was a constitutional endeavor, which meant that the Confederates had not, in fact, been treasonous. There, we've talked about this before, but there's actually like no provision in the Constitution that allows a state once admitted to the United States to leave the United States. Yeah. There is no constitutional way for a state to secede. Or to even seed land. Yeah, it's not a thing. It's, it's not just a thing. weird. Yeah. Uh, so in a region at that time marked by racial conflict, as newly free blacks challenged segregation, disenfranchisement, and wanton violence, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Lost Cause myth cast a nostalgic glow on the antebellum South. They celebrated the traditional privileges of race and gender and class by casting them as natural parts of the South's history and looked to that history as a guide as to how they should shape race and gender relations in the new South. The daughter's historian general, Mildred Rutherford, who served in the position from 1911 to 1916, firmly believed that African-Americans needed to behave as faithful servants if the new version of the region were to ever approximate the old and, according to her, racially harmonious South. Uh, yeah. God, like... So, like, reading Just, it in 2022 is... is uh, it's crazy, right? But you, I try to read history as the people who are experiencing it mm -hmm. would have read it, like would have experienced and wrote these documents. And I just, I can't, mm, how, how, how do you say that race relations in the South were harmonious without a considerable, just massive endeavor in um, in in cognitive dissonance, yeah, to sort of erase all of the the families that were forcibly separated, the brutality that was inflicted upon 
Africans that have been brought over the, the, like, how do you call that? If it was harmonious, it was harmonious at gunpoint, which isn't harmony. (laughs) No, it's, it is forced compliance. And I think as I'm thinking about this, like I didn't go into detail. I don't know how old, you know, Ms. Rutherford was when she said this, but there's a good chance that she was a child in the years right before the Civil War. And if you think about a child's perspective and how much yeah. they don't know about what's going on, it probably yeah. looked very harmonious to her. It probably looked like nobody was mad and everyone was doing what they were told. And and she probably was not exposed to much of the brutality that that made enslaved people so compliant with what was going on. Yeah, I, I say compliant because it's they weren't okay with it, right? Yeah. They weren't even obedient. They were compliant. Yeah. Um, and so it probably looked to her as though it was harmonious. And then this ter- big, terrible war came in and disrupted everything. And then after that, there was violence and disruption and and people not doing what they were told and civil disobedience. And it, I suppose to her, it could have looked that way. But... The only this this the only it's the only exception I'm willing to make. I think the only like way I could think somebody genuinely felt this way is if they were in fact as naive as a child, right? In the period leading up to and then uh, after the Civil War, like it's just right. mm, yeah. And and even then, it's because. It's because somebody taught her that, you know, like somebody said to her, oh, they like it. They're they're They like being here. They're better off here than they were in Africa. Like all of those things that we teach our children. We'll get to that particular uh, mentality here in a little bit. Um, Back to the daughters. The daughters, they, they published pamphlets and gave speeches sharing ideas that justified the way of life in the South. In one pamphlet. Rutherford made the case that Africans brought to America had been savage to the last degree and sometimes cannibals. But while under slavery, they were the happiest set of people on the face of the globe. In another, she noted that when faced with the challenges of freedom, African-Americans as a race had become disorderly idle, vicious, and diseased. (laughs) (laughs) S.E.F. Rose, a prominent organization member from Mississippi, authored The Ku Klux Klan, or Invisible Empire of 1914, with the UDC's, the Daughters of the Confederacy's, unanimous endorsement, describing Klan violence as having delivered the South from a bondage worse than death. As an organization, the daughters also took it upon themselves to review histories and textbooks for material that was unjust to the South, according to the Lost Cause narrative, even publishing a guide called A Measuring Rod to Test Textbooks and Reference Books in Schools, Colleges, and Libraries. They sought changes to, or the removal of, school books that didn't meet their standards, And when many states adopted free textbook programs, they flooded state-run schools with their apologist version of history, some of which made their way into segregated black schools, you know, once the white kids were done with them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this lost cause myth 
has had long-term consequences for Southern race relations. Historian Karen Cox notes that the generation of children raised on this lost cause interpretation of the Civil War was the same generation that fought ruthlessly against public school desegregation in the 1950s and 1960s. These white Southerners, including Strom Thurmond and Bull Connor, revived the rhetoric of states' rights to preserve segregation and prevent black civil rights. Even worse, segregationists began invoking Confederate symbols, such as the battle flag, forever linking them with white supremacists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, the United Daughters of Confederacy are also responsible for the hella Confederate monuments that exist all over the U.S., and that saw a lot of vandalization in the summer of 2020. Oh, Current no. estimates say that there are somewhere between 450 and 700 of them. Most of them are small, but some of them are significant and nationally known. And all of them were created with the goal of creating sympathy for the Confederate fallen and reminding Southerners what they, sacri what they sacrificed so much for. At the 1913 unveiling of a statue that came to be known as Silent Sam at the University of North Carolina, which is no longer there, the featured speaker was Julian Carr, an industrialist and Confederate veteran. Carr made a rousing, inspirational speech to the crowd about the importance of these monuments and of the Southern way of life. He said, The whole Southland is sanctified by the precious blood of the student Confederate soldier. No nobler young man has ever lived. No braver soldiers ever answered the bugle call, nor marched under a battle flag. They fought not for conquest, not for coercion, but from a high and holy sense of duty. The present generation, I am persuaded, scarcely takes note of what the Confederate soldier meant to the welfare of the Anglo-Saxon race during the four years immediately succeeding the war, when the facts are that their courage and steadfast, steadfastness saved the very life of the Anglo-Saxon race in the South. When the bottom rail was on top, meaning blacks had gained some iota of social status and or agency, all over the, the southern states, and today, as a consequence, the purest strain of the Anglo-Saxon is to be found in the 13 southern states. Praise God. So, with a sentiment like that behind these monuments, it's a real wonder why so many of us want them taken down. Um, mm -hmm. I just, every time I hear stuff like this, I really want to ask, I really want to ask, like, what's so great about being white? Like, I put it into words. Why are you so scared about whiteness no longer existing? What is it I about mean, that? What are you trying to preserve? You guys burn in the sun really easily. I would yeah. feel like in the South, that's not a plus. I can't even go to the beach without fearing for my life. But like, more to the point, being white isn't like a, a, a it's not a culture. White isn't a culture. You've got whites no. from Ireland. You've got whites from Sweden. You've got whites from Germany. They all have different cultures. Why do you want to preserve the color of the skin and not just like German culture or Irish culture or Swedish culture? Like those are all things that you can preserve and celebrate without subjugating other people. Right. Uh, and this idea that it has to be like an either or, right? Like, yeah, we can celebrate like if you're both, not winning, you know? you're losing, right? 
mm, and that goes back to zero sum politics and zero just the zero sum mentality which they're all lies but Mm -hmm. Uh, okay 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 back throughout the south (laughs) throughout the south (laughs) these days of remembrance um they they gave families an opportunity to honor their war dead corporately right and so did those in the north when the united states adopted a national memorial day several southern states continued celebrating their own holiday georgia tennessee texas and north carolina all recognized the day without closing state offices. But despite the cultural climate and criticism, Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina still honor the day with a state holiday. On May 10th, the day South Carolina commemorates Confederate Memorial Day, gubernatorial candidate Joe Cunningham tweeted, Today, I don't know, I really want to read it. I can't do a South Carolina accent very well, I don't think. No, it's South Carolina is particular. Yeah, it's got a different sort of twang to it than, than the general Southern drawl. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Today, state offices are closed to observe Confederate Memorial Day. This is another example of how our state continues to live in the past. Honestly, it's embarrassing. He tweeted Tuesday, When I'm governor, we're going to end Confederate Memorial Day and make Election Day a state holiday instead. I agree with this. I message. agree with this also. But pushback against removing the days from the calendar has met with resistance. Bills to repeal Texas Confederate Heroes Day, which happens in January, have died in legislature three times. And Governor Tate Reeves recently declared that April is Confederacy Heritage Month in Mississippi, which smarts a bit because he also signed a proclamation joining many others in recognizing Genocide Awareness and Prevention Month in April. (laughs) Mm. Hold on. (laughs) Let's just do a quick search here. Uh, Genocide definition. The deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. Hmm. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess technically slavery doesn't count as genocide, but come on. Well, but the UN defines it as a an intent on the part of perpetrators to physically destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Cultural destruction does not suffice, nor does any intention to simply disperse a group. So, like... If you approach from the perspective that white Southerners during the Confederacy wanted to create a breed, if you will, that sounds gross and I hate saying it, but wanted to create a class of humans that didn't have any culture and obeyed with blind... That's fair. You know, with, with just they just... That's that that's a genocide. Like the right. people might still be there or people might still exist, but like there's no culture. And they were like slaves were famously allowed not not allowed rather to pursue their culture of the of the lands that they came from if they even remembered it because if they were born here. Yeah. It's actually like that's a really huge distinction that I I wasn't really aware of it before a couple of years ago, but 
the reason that we can say things like there isn't really a white culture, whiteness has retained elements of like its individual Irish, Swedish, whatever culture, even here in America. But we do have a black culture in America because black people were not, African people were not allowed to retain their individual culture. Some people who, thankfully, with the help of like genetic testing and and that kind of thing have been able to know and understand some of their ethnic history. But anymore, like we don't, we don't often have the opportunity to know and celebrate our African ethnic cultures. So we created our own Hmm. out of what was left when the white Southerners said, your name is Toby. Mm. Mm. I don't know. There's, uh, I love I, I talking about, about the history of the Civil War, mainly because I feel like there's so much that can be known and we don't know enough about it. And because we don't know enough about it, we say bullshit like mm-hmm. slaves were happy and owners treated slaves well and stuff like that as if that somehow justifies owning a person like it totally ignores the entire problem to begin with but that aside like it's also just factually incorrect based on primary source documentation that we have right it's just like i'm sorry no, it's I mean that's the whole that's the whole point of this. That's why we can have these conversations with people where they're like, no, it's about states' rights. It's about heritage, not hate. Like bullshit. But because people don't know enough about what happened and what about people like what people at the time were saying about what was happening, we we have to have those conversations. So, okay. Why why do people continue to con- to commemorate the Confederacy? Again, super, really complex question that involves an intersection of this revisionist history, idealism, and then probably just a tiny bit of subconscious racism, conscious racism. Um, I'm going to say conscious racism plays a role in it, too. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of both, maybe. Not not with everybody, but yep, 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 yep. Yeah. But anymore, what, what could anyone gain by honoring the Confederacy? Uh, Those who observe the holiday would likely argue that it's about preserving history and protecting heritage. At least that's what the descendants of Confederate veterans say. (laughs) Their mission is to establish and maintain an honorable, non-racist Southern heritage and history organization dedicated to perpetuation of the memory and spirit of the Confederate soldiers and sailors who served their country during the war between the states. I did it. You did it. I'm very I did proud it. of you. Generally speaking, the argument frequently raised about memorializing the Confederacy with holidays or monuments is focused on making history accessible to all. <laughs> the argument is these observances will keep the United States from repeating these same mistakes. To these folks, the cessation of these holidays or removal of these memorials would be tantamount to erasing the fact of the Confederacy from history. I promise you I'm not going to own people and I don't need a statue of Jefferson Davis to remind me not to own other people. What? I know, shocking. That's crazy. I mean, and if you do, we need to have a conversation. Anybody out there who needs that statue of a man on a horse to remind them that they shouldn't own other people, 
we can have a talk. I mean, I was thinking about it, but then I got on Lee Jackson Memorial Highway and I was like, oh, right, right. right. It's a bad thing. And I shouldn't do that. And I don't know. Maybe it's just in my jeans. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Get it? Oh, my God. The, <laughs> the heritage that is often cited in these claims is most likely referring to this idea of the lost cause, which we discussed a little bit earlier. It was generally, the lost cause is generally this coping mechanism used by former Confederates to come to terms with their defeat in the war. That's the like tidy package that you can use to define it. When people speak about the Confederacy as this proud, noble idea filled with honor and sacrifice, they're channeling the talking points of the lost cause. The lost cause strove and continues to strive, the people who perpetuate it, to associate the Confederacy with these, these high virtues of, of sacrifice, of duty, of um, honor, of service, like to associate with all these. These are what we're celebrating are these people. Oops, just hit my mic. We're celebrating these people who, who displayed all of these incredible um, traits and were, were uh, you know, titans among men of virtue as, as if Confederate human beings in the Confederacy rather were, were somehow anything but human beings and flawed and, and conflicted as all of us are. Right. right. Uh, it actually kind of makes me think of like, it's, it's almost as if they were trying to cast the Confederate human because it wasn't just soldiers, right? Um, the Confederate human as, as, as like a Greek God, sort of right. like associating it with that sort of visual, those ideals. Um, and more often than I care to admit, I've heard a defense of the Confederacy uh, start with a claim that it was about, you know, the rights of the states against the encroachments of the federal power. Um, if only they claimed the North hadn't tried to force their values on the South, the noble South, um, the war would never have happened. But the North was cruel and uh, calculating and, and aggressive. So the Southerners were defending their homeland and their rights. And from this, from this noble ideal uh, flows that the, the South's cause was therefore righteous and just. And that the only reason that the North won, as we mentioned earlier, was because they simply had more resources and they just eventually overwhelmed the South. So I would like to take you back <laughs> in time to 1904 <laughs> when the Daughters of the Confederacy, them again, yeah, wrote the, uh, the Catechism, cate catechism I'll get that word right someday. The Catechism for Children that highlights the mentality of lost cause believers. Okay. And this what we, right? yeah, this is, this is sort of the mentality of what is being upheld with these memorials and celebrations, right? <clears throat> and just a little bit of a primer for somebody who may not know what a catechism is. It's like this, um, this learning, it's usually used in religion and it's kind of like an introductory course to this ideology that once you complete this introductory course, you are uh, officially a member of the group. It's like learning. It's it's Catholicism 101 or Lutheranism yeah. 101. Um, it's so usually supposed to be – sorry. It's it's just supposed to be like a 
the way I understand it, like a formulaic rote, you know, call and response sort of thing. Yes. So this is this is how you can show that you are a real United Daughter of the Confederacy if you can answer these questions. So question one, how many were enrolled in the Federal or Northern Army? 2,778,304. Very specific number. Right. Um, and this was followed immediately by what number was enrolled in the Confederate Army? 600,000. Exactly. Exactly. How many more men were in the Northern Army? Many more than three times as many as the South had in the field. How many years did the war last? Four years, and there is no record in all the world's history of an army that endured more privations with greater fortitude or fought more bravely than the soldiers of the Confederacy. Under what disadvantages did the Confederate army fight? Not only did the Confederates have greatly inferior numbers, but they were poorly armed, often scarce of ammunition, and scantily fed and clothed. A little later, was the Confederate army defeated? Now, you might, you might think that this answer is pretty obvious, but alas, mm. the answer is no. no. It was overpowered by numbers and its resources exhausted, but it was never defeated. Never defeated. For what was the Army of the South particularly noted? It was noted for its great commanders, great as soldiers and great as men of stainless character, and for the loyalty of the men in the ranks who were dauntless in courage, the bravest of the brave ever ready to rush into the jaws of death at the command of their great leaders. Uh. Yeah. Doesn't say so, who noted the army right. of the South for that. Probably just them. <laughs> Probably just them. So here's the thing: like these are these were only what was that like five, six, seven questions uh, yeah. um, out of I, I'm pretty sure 64. And you can see that the picture that it's trying to paint here is of a ragtag group of honorable and noble defenders fighting against the superior giant you know, army of the North. And it's just propaganda. Mm -hmm. It's propaganda. It's propaganda. How propaganda. do you, how do you say the Confederate army was never defeated when it literally does not exist anymore? Right. It can't exist anymore. Like and when being you're, overpowered by numbers and its resources yeah, exhausted. That, that's defeat. That's the <laughs> definition of defeat in a military context. Like that is so, what it is. Yeah. So, um, these, <laughs> They're, they're these willing and, again, uh, mentally sort of uh, disparate and unconnected ideals that we're trying to bring together in a sort of defense of something that is indefensible. And ultimately, mm -hmm. I think everybody knows that it was indefensible, but we're trying to do it anyway. And this is why we're doing it. It's because of these noble, noble things that these people did. Um, but because we don't want to play into the lost cause mentality here, let it be plainly stated that the South's military defeat was hastened by social and class divisions, poor morale, desertations, and the emancipation of enslaved people of enslaved people who were the primary source of labor supplying Confederate armies. So mm -hmm. yeah, they were grumpy, they hated it, and they were losing, so they left. Bye bye. Surprise! 
Yeah, this is this propaganda. And I, again, I'll, I've said it before and I will say it again. I love propaganda as a communication form um, because it's just, it's so effective. Like you can see very clearly throughout these examples of the lost cause narrative. And if you hopefully go and do a little bit more investigating yourself, you'll see these themes repeated down for a hundred and almost 60 years of American cultural and social history. Like these, this, this narrative influenced the way that we believe about, about the South, about white Americans, about black Americans, about states' rights. Like that's where this comes from. And we're still arguing it today. We are still, that's still a prominent narrative in American politics today. So um, propaganda, man. Yeah, the, the Lost Cause also loves to claim that Robert E. Lee abhorred slavery and was, in fact, an opponent of slavery. But again, this doesn't marry with the image that Lee himself portrays in his own writings, wherein he consistently and remorselessly wrote about not only slaves, but Mexicans and Native Americans as being hideous and culturally inferior. In an 1856 letter to his wife, Lee described slavery as being evil, but it that it was a greater evil for whites than for blacks because the slaves were better off than in Africa, morally, socially, and physically, and that the only one who is responsible for the slaves' condition is God. Huh, it's God's fault that they're slaves. Yeah. This line of logic, while it does make it sound like Lee was generally anti-slavery, was actually a common tactic used by pro-slavery apologists of his time. Nowhere in his writing does he outline any actions or plans for working toward a slave-free society. He just washes his hands of all responsibility and says, eh, God will sort it out. We could go on and on about Lee, but we don't really have time. Suffice it to say, he was no saint and certainly felt no qualms about the institution of slavery. None. There's, yeah, yeah. There's more to the lost cause myth and... I honestly strongly recommend reading more about it and why it is simple propaganda through and through. Um, a great starting point would be a write-up by James Oliver Horton of George Washington University entitled Confronting Slavery and Revealing the Lost Cause on the National Park Service website. We have the link in our show notes um, and also in the write-up for this show. These are the show notes. Um so if you go to our website, you can find it, but it'll also be hopefully in the episode description. That's what I meant to say. Um, but it makes it very clear about, it makes it very clear why the Confederate States seceded and that pretty much by itself undoes the underpinnings of the lost cause yeah. argument. Yeah. The point being, those who cling to these memorializations, both physical and symbolic, feel like they're defending this noble, strong, independent ideal. The kind of ideal that spawned Gone with the Wind and mm -hmm. the Antebellum South and paints slavery as an institution that benefited all parties involved, where, where slaves were treated with kindness and the aggressive North, fearful of losing power to the prosperous South, betrayed the Southern states and forced the war into existence. But for those that don't hold that image of the Confederacy, learning about the continued celebration and remembrances can be jarring. To many of us, these holidays and statues embolden racists and prolong inequality in the United States. 
uh, to quote a reader who wrote into the Chicago Defender, which is an African-American newspaper, if those monuments weren't standing, the white South wouldn't be so encouraged to practice hate and discrimination against our people. And for the record, that quote comes from 1932. This is hardly a new phenomenon. These ideas, they're more than just problematic. Continuing to honor the Confederacy perpetually puts a large portion of the United States population into the very uncomfortable position of watching people celebrate the subjugation of people who looked just like them. Remember that Juneteenth, which celebrates the emancipation of slaves, and it specifically relates to slavery in Texas, but it kind of stands as a symbol for emancipation in general. Um, Juneteenth only became a federal holiday in 2021. That's last year. Mm -hmm. Florida still doesn't recognize Juneteenth as a holiday. It's currently a day of observance, which is essentially a step down from a legal holiday. State Senator Randolph Bracey of, oh boy, I don't know how to pronounce this, Ocoee. Ocoee, I looked it up. Oh, Ocoee, all right. State Senator Randolph Bracey of Ocoee is trying to change that with a bill to designate June 19th as a legal holiday in the state of Florida. But he's doing so in the face of a bill that was passed after the George Floyd protests that provides for much harsher legal penalties for rioters, quote unquote rioters, right? The bill is so sweeping that nonviolent protesters who find themselves caught in the middle of a riot might also be subject to a felony charge. It denies bail to those who are arrested, protects motorists who run over protesters with their car. Imagine if such a provision had existed during the Charlottesville protests. It makes vandalizing a statue like Confederate statues a felony, which is absurd. Um, It's just it's overbearing and overreaching. Yeah. I mean, and as the Orlando Sentinel editorial board asked, what are black Floridians to think when the political bosses in this state are so eager to assign new tougher penalties to protest without making any effort to understand the underlying causes of those protests? And what are black Floridians to think when not one of the more than two dozen people surrounding DeSantis during the bill signing ceremony looked like them? What are they to think when Florida celebrates Confederate Memorial Day on April 26th, Robert E. Lee Day on January 19th, and another holiday to honor the president of the breakaway states, Jefferson Davis, on June 3rd, but still won't recognize Juneteenth as a holiday? In short, the Florida legislator... In short, the Florida legislature wants to keep holidays that honor those who fought to continue slavery, but doesn't want to create a legal holiday marking the end of slavery. The inescapable conclusion, in my opinion, is that Black Americans are unimportant. Their protests do not carry enough weight to counter the desires of a, let's face it, relatively small group of people dedicated to glorifying a horrific foundational moment in America's history. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I mean, normally we try to present as unbiased a view as we can, but I just don't think that there is a safe way to not be biased here. If 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 you don't come out against the horrors of the Confederacy and what it represented, if you're not actively against it, then the people who believe in those things, who still believe in those things, will take that as a tacit approval. Right. There is a a very famous quote that talks about if you don't 
side, it basically gives the idea that if you don't side with the oppressed, then you are the oppressor, even if you're neutral, because there is no neutrality when somebody is being oppressed. Right. Um, and I, I like I just cannot. I can't continue to think that it's OK, especially to have these holidays uh, in, in the United States and and think that it's sending any message other than uh, we miss when we could enslave people who looked like this and it's right. just it's, and it's, yeah, i mean it's it's disgusting it's not even just florida right like texas has been having this same conversation they have confederate heroes day and they have a kind of implicit yeah. confederate history month but they can't pass a bill to honor juneteenth as a holiday even though it is literally a texas holiday like Juneteenth celebrates the day that people rode into Galveston, Texas, and told probably the last remaining slaves that you are no longer slaves. Which was a considerable amount of time after emancipation, by the way. Like two years, right? Yeah. It was was a long time. We talked about it a few, uh, several episodes ago. I can't remember which one. Yeah. Uh, Didn't we do an episode on Juneteenth, actually? Uh, I don't think Um, we did a whole episode, but I think we mentioned it. Oh, yeah. So, Yeah. No, it's, it's, I don't know. There's a sort of, um, I don't, I don't think magic is the right word, but there's a power to a holiday. Mm-hmm. There is a influence that it exerts such that if you are aware of it, and especially if you c- celebrate it, it sort of gives the ideals that it represents life and power of their own. And that is why we have holidays, because we know we recognize the significance of of holding days in honor for certain ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's just you can't you cannot convince me that celebrating the Confederacy is a good thing to do, because the arguments that you're going to use to try to convince me are based on lies, on propaganda. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. Where my brain's out of this. It's very frustrating to me. Yeah. Anyhow. I'm very frustrated by it. If you're frustrated and want to be frustrated with us, why don't you tell us on our website at firesidebreakdowns.com. There you can find our show notes where you can find all of our research and links to all this cool stuff. Um, you can leave us a review, which not leave us a review. You can do that, but not on our website. You can find a link to leave us a review on our website, though. There we go. Saved it. And you should do that. Please leave us a review. It it really, it's like the most important thing that somebody can do for a podcast. I cannot stress it enough. Um, but you can write us a note. You can send us an email or something from our website. We'll get it. We'll read it. It'll be great. And find links to our social media. Also, you can find a link to our Patreon, which Savannah has taken on the role of uh, managing and yes. our promises and stuff. And we are very, very grateful for that. Um, but if you feel like kicking a few dollars our way to help us justify the massive time sink that this is every week <laughs> and the stress, we would greatly appreciate it. Yes. Yes. So after that. All right. Let's let's get some good some news. Good news. Yes, yeah. please. It's good. It's good-ish news. Like, it's really hard to, um, it's really hard to find good news this week. So we're going with good-ish. Senator good Chris. Good news. Yeah. 
Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut is leading the charge toward finding some compromise on gun safety legislation in the 10 days before Congress ends the current session. On Wednesday, he tweeted, the plan is to work hard at compromise for the next 10 days. Hopefully we succeed and the Senate can vote on a bipartisan bill that saves lives. But if we can't find common ground, then we're going to take a vote on gun violence. The Senate will not ignore this crisis. Talking to two reporters, he said, I'm hopeful that there's growing momentum, but I have failed plenty of times before. Uh, Murphy is an incredibly strong advocate for gun safety legislation, uh, being from Connecticut and taking office basically immediately after the Sandy Hook massacre. For now, Murphy's heading toward an effort to see if he can find bipartisan compromise on the issue. He says he's open to anything that could get sufficient support, though any agreement is likely to center on red flag laws and universal background checks, two policies that Republicans have expressed a willingness to consider. But if the effort falls short, then the Senate plans to vote on two House-passed bills focused on strengthening background checks in order to get lawmakers on the record on the issue ahead of the midterms. Yeah. Uh, for our uh, for our listeners, uh, that was 10 days from, I believe, the 27th, because I yes. think the last day of the session is June 6th. I think that is yeah. uh, when they will leave. So basically a week from when this com- when this episode is published. Um it is good news in that, you know, there's a push for it. I think there is appetite in the American populace that yeah. for, for some sort of like just common sense gun safety stuff. I still, I mean, as somebody who we talked about this in our text uh, chain as well, like as somebody who owns several guns, like a actually ridiculous amount of guns myself, um, you know, I'm, I, I think that it only makes sense to have tests and, and conditions for such a intentionally dangerous thing. Like, right. And I, just, I, I don't, I don't get it. I feel like this, um, I feel like gun safety legislation and abortion legislation are kind of a litmus test right now for whether or not our representatives in the legislative branch of government actually represent the will of their constituencies. Yeah. Because we know that something close to 90% of the American population supports gun safety legislation when it comes to things like red flag laws and background checks. We know that something like 70% of the population supports a lot of flexibility when it comes to abortion legislation. And yet we have entire divisions of our legislative branch that are unwilling to consider policies that their constituencies are advocating for. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, in large part because of the effects of gerrymandering on the uh, structure or the, the the breakdown of power in, in Congress. You have a very small portion of the American population who feel very strongly about stuff, um, who will vote for people who will then change the rules or gerrymander in order to allow themselves to get more power or to add to their seats. And that is what we're seeing is a minority of the American public, the voting population, holding a majority hostage. And that's, yeah. that is a problem. Right. And especially um, and when it comes down to senators, like we have a hundred senators, right? We have 50 states, a hundred senators. Yeah. And we have voters who will vote on a party line, 
regardless of the issues at hand. And then those senators get to they get up to the Senate and they vote on these bills based on the most extreme parts of their constituency, forgetting that probably 85 percent of the rest of the people in their state don't actually support the thing that they're that they're voting on. So um, this is this is a nice challenge to watch what your senators and what your representatives are doing in the next 10 days in the coming session and hold them accountable for representing your perspective. Call them, email them, tag them on social media, call them out, make it clear when they're not representing you in the way that they are duty bound to do and then vote them out, vote them the hell out. Even if they're the party that you align with, vote against them in the primary. Turn out for your primaries, people. Yes. Like the only reason government feels like it's ineffective or ineffective for you is because people who feel that way don't show up to make it work for them. Exactly. You have to participate. Yeah. Before it is impossible to participate. And that it's is not fear mongering. That is a goal. Yes. <laughs> like people explicitly want to make it impossible for certain people to participate in government. So let's not let it get there. Be motivated, go out, do something about it. Also, just prime example of why the Senate Senate is an inherently undemocratic institution. Never mind. I can't get into that conversation right now. We need to sign off. We got to go. We got so much stuff to do. Thank you all so very much for listening. Um, I hope you found this entertaining and enjoyable and educational. Ooh, I got the three E's. Um, We will be back to you in one week with a wild and crazy episode that I don't think we've determined about what it will be about yet. Until that time, stay safe and take care of each other. (laughs) 